Breaker, what's your 20? This here's the podcast crew. We're hauling up at 901, about to hit the airwaves. Ready for big trucks, cool characters, and the explosive action you'll only find in Convoy? Well, rev up your engines for... An earful of Convoy. Northern California's number one podcast about the 1978 movie based upon the 1976 novelty song about trucking. Fans of cinema and music will find much alike. That is, if you're not some no-good bear like Dirty Lyle. Breaker, breaker, good buddy. Expect in-depth analysis, breaking news about the cast and crew, a little rubber duck humor, and we'll even have a bear in the air. They even had a bear in the air. Hello and welcome to a very special episode of An Earful of Convoy. Hello, fans. Hello, fans. Uh, we have some, We have a... An amazing treat for you today. Uh, we have two very special guests with us. They're Academy Award-nominated filmmakers. Uh, they're experts on the life and films of Sam Peckinpah. You know them as two-thirds of the Dog Brothers from the Blu-ray commentary track of Convoy, and also just about every Sam Peckinpah film on home media. Uh, so we don't have all three together, uh, but we have managed to get two out of three. Uh, we have Nick... Actually, can I interrupt yes? here? It, it really should be... Three out of four, because David Weddle was not able to do the convoy one, and on all the others, it's it's David Garner and myself. With Nick as the point man who who keeps things moving along and feeds us questions when we need them, and so on and so forth. That's that just so that you understand that. Yeah, actually, I was yeah, I, I was going to jump in there too. Yeah, it's it's two thirds of the convoy. Of the convoy, yes, but yes. of the Dog Brothers, it is. It two sounds of, like there's yeah. at least four and, and potentially even more. But well, there's actually more than that. But <laughs> yeah. the ones we're just the ones who do. Thanks to Nick. I mean, Nick was the one who started all this a long time, many years ago, with the DVDs and. That's then I, I thought it was just so terrific. We took Nick out to supper and then we thought this would be fun to do regularly. So we have and there's probably about six of us, I think, ultimately, if you count <laughs> Jesse and Ron Shelton is now part of our number as well. So excellent. Anyway. So, yeah. So so on, as far as the Convoy three, we have we have we have two of them here, at least we have uh, you, you've heard them already. Nick Redman, record producer. Uh, on classic and contemporary film scores, co-creator of the Academy-nominated The Wild Bunch, an album in montage. Welcome, Nick. Uh, thanks so much, Alan and Mark. Glad to be here. Cool. And, and we have Paul Cedor, editor on films such as Tin Cup and White Men Can't Jump, and also co-creator of the Academy Award-nominated The Wild Bunch, an album in montage. So welcome, Paul. Thank you. Happy to be here. Cool. Uh, all right. So, so I think you know, just just to give our listeners some some context on this, although hopefully they know from previous episodes. So, we, you know, this is all set up as you know, many episodes ago we watched the Blu-ray. We were very excited for the first time to see the <laughs> Blu-ray with the commentary track and 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 also a, yeah. a, like a blu and, and you know, the Keanu Lorber Blu-ray was beautiful. Oh, it, excellent transfer. And uh, yeah, it's in the commentary track. We were we learned so much, you know, from watching it. Uh, but it was it was I, I feel as a convoy fan it was a mixed bag insofar as we learned so much but we learned that the commentary track was more more often than not uh, fairly negative towards uh, the movie convoy and uh, it's 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 an interesting experience I think it's the first time <laughs> in my life I've ever listened to a commentary track that uh, that was that very ha- negative that happens to trash the movie <laughs> yeah. as much as this one did yeah well listen to the killer elite one sometimes that. <laughs> 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 I well, I think we should put into into context here. I, I, Paul can speak much more to the movie than than, than me, but I, I would like to put into context where we're coming from with these commentaries, which is we have been lucky enough and privileged enough 
to do commentaries on pretty much all of Sam Peckinpah's film output. Uh, and we're even doing some now on his television output. Um, uh, and so therefore, because of our interest and, histo- and history with Sam Peckinpah and his movies, the context for us is, where does this film sit in the overall of of Sam Peckinpah? Not in the case of Convoy, for example, where does it sit in the history of big rig trucker movies? <laughs> uh, we're not judging it as, is it better than, you know, some road movie, bead movie made about big rigs? Is where does it sit in Sam Peckinpah's world? And the negativity that you perceive uh, is only when, when you have to contrast it to his better days and better films uh, and the work that has gone before. Um, it's sad for us, actually, to have to speak to some of Sam Peckinpah's lesser work, but we have to be honest about it, and we can't cast it as a masterpiece. We can't say that it's as good as The Wild Bunch. We can't say that it's up there with Ride the High Country or any of his other classics. Uh, we have to say that this is something that he did for money. He never would have done it otherwise, <laughs> uh, and that uh, he was all also in a very bad physical shape and having a great deal of trouble with alcohol and drugs at the time. Uh, and the mess that is Convoy is a consequence of all of those, uh, you know, situations and conditions yeah. of his life at that time. Yeah, I, I was going to say, uh, Nick has just basically said everything that I wanted to say on on, on that score as well, that it, it was... I mean, for example, the commentaries, for me at least, for this and, and Killer Elite, which both of which we did for for Nick's um, uh, wonderful Twilight Time uh, uh, Blu-ray label, these these were not these were not commentaries that we particularly enjoyed doing. I mean, I <laughs> it, it, it's not something that I find. I mean, I. I I, I will state this as strongly as possible. I mean, I think that Sam Peckinpah made one of the great artworks of the 20th century in The Wild Bunch. And when I say that, I mean right up there with The Rite of Spring and a novel or two by Faulkner and 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 so forth. I, I, I could go on and on. I mean, and it you have only to look at films in the wake of The Wild Bunch to see how pervasive, I mean, ubiquitous, really, the influence and importance of that work is. I mean, a word like seminal is probably overused, but in the case of The Wild Bunch, it literally does apply, and some of the other films, too, like Straw Dogs and and, and so forth. So, um, Convoy, (laughs) at least we look at Convoy that differently. I mean, I know one of Sam's friends, uh, he's an actor who is who died not all that long ago, Robert Culp, who has written very eloquently of the Wild Bunch. And when he, he wrote about going to the convoy screening, and he said when he left that convoy screening, he actually broke down and wept. He was so, it, it just, it just, hurt him so bad, badly, to see what he perceived as a genuinely great artist in that kind of decline. Now, having said that, I do want to say that there is a film critic, I think he is really one of the very best film critics writing these days, and has been for a very long time now, I mean, for the better part of 30, over 30 years now. His name is Michael Schrago. 
And Michael has written very enthusiastically about Convoy, very intelligently about it. I mean, he, he, he I, I wish his review weren't buried in, 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 you know, the vaults of the Herald Examiner from 1978 when Michael's review first came out. But he review, he views it as a really happy-go-lucky ode to the raucous, rebellious, individualistic spirit of these of these guys working the convoy. I mean, and he thinks that Sam plugged into a real a real kind of joyous but somewhat nihilistic well nihilistic is perhaps the wrong word but a joyous form of anarchy and and at one in one point in his review michael said you know peckinpah peckinpah sees i mean it, he he he's he's in love with these guys energy and their individualism and their colorfulness and all the rest of it but because he's an artist he also sees how crazy they really are <laughs> and the thing is I'm I'm actually mostly in agreement with Michael on that aspect of the film, and I probably should have said that or more of that as as we were watching the film. I was surprised the last time I watched Convoy all the way through. I mean, it did surprise me how much of it held up and held together for about two-thirds of the way as a kind of good satire and there's some political satire. And then what happens is the film, at least for me, goes so badly awry and off-key. I mean, when all the truckers go to rescue Spider Mike from the jail, (laughs) and you look at this kind of stuff, and I think, I mean, I'd be curious to get your guys' response to it. I mean... You know, when they destroy that town, this isn't a town of fat cats who have lots of money and all the rest of it. I mean, you can tell these are poor people. These are trailer trash. I expect there's a lot of there's a lot of Hispanics in that town whose place whose places would be destroyed. And of course, you get this destructo orgy that Sam gives you, and nobody gets hurt. So. I, I have to say, compared to what Sam's films is all, have always been about with their violence, I will freely confess, I don't know how to interpret that scene, and I definitely don't enjoy it. And then as you move on in the film, where you get Ernest Borgnine suddenly getting very serious, we represent the law, and of course, that's a line that comes right out of Harrigan in The Wild Bunch, except that here... It's Ernest Borgnine, and so Sam is thinking, well, wait a minute, Ernie's one of us. He's one of the good guys. So at the end of the film, completely without any preparation, he now gets to be one of the good guys after having been one of the machine gun guys. I have to confess that that I don't think Nick was speaking too harshly when he calls the whole, if you want to call it the third act or whatever it is, certainly the whole last 25 to 30 percent of the movie is just a complete mess i mean and and it's a mess in one particular way you know the matter of tone you know tone is is actually a technical term of of aesthetic analysis that refers to the author's attitude toward his material and sam at his best is a that is a is a master of tone and here 
I, I can't figure out, I mean, is it ridicule? Is it just happy-go-lucky, zany fun? But if so, where has that been earned? I would, where I would, does it come from? I would jump in to say I, I completely agree on one level, but I think it overlooks another level. I think it is very it's incompatible with the rest of his oeuvre, at least his most successful films, but it kind of creates a new thing. And I think I was reflecting upon these criticisms in the commentary track, and I I kind of jumped into one conclusion I had, which is other films having something more of a dream logic, whereas this film has more of a cartoon logic, but it works within that context. And if I had to piece together what the overall you know, meaning of this to me is I think it, it shows the ability of these real people in a real world. It isn't a cartoon world, real people, but they embrace the possibility of exaggeration to find a new way of morality, a new set of morals. And through this lens of this heightened reality, they prove the dignity of their lives and they somehow transcend their own lives. And I think at the end, when you see them somehow, they're on the same side, Dirty Lyle and uh, the duck. It's the fact that they have reached this kind of heightened reality with themselves, and this somehow reflects the fact they're, they're people with dignity in their lives, which is a very different conclusion than other films would reach. But I think it's valid within its own cons- consistency. Well, what I have to do then in answer, was this Alan talking? That was Mark. That was Mark. Mark. Mark, what I just have to say in that, and here I suppose I'm really going to step into it, especially if there are a lot of cineasts interested, you know, uh, listening on this and so forth. But your argument there reminds me, to a large extent, um, of the argument that a lot of people use to try to justify the ending of John Ford's The Searchers, where you have this crazed racist who basically has been trying to get Debbie back um, for almost no other reason than the fact that he'd like to kill her because she's been violated by a red man and so so on and so forth. And then at the end, she's running away from him and he rides up and John Wayne gets off on his horse and picks her up and says, come on home, Debbie. Well, I'd like, like everybody else, to be able to believe in that ending, but I want this. I want the missing scene or scenes that show me how it got there. I want the development that shows me how it got there. I mean, where, where does Dirty Lyle? I mean, Dirty Lyle does he get to help Spider Mike at some? I mean, what what does he do that brings him back into the fold? Uh, That's an I, interesting. I just. Yeah. I'm. I mean, I don't see. I don't even see it as a leap of faith in the film. I see it as something that well. Um, here I have some knowledge about, about Peck and Paul. You know, at the end of The Killer Elite, another movie that there are some people, I mean, Pauline Kael, who also liked Convoy, notably wrote this extraordinary review about Killer Elite, in which she reviews it, views it at this kind of revenge fantasy um, allegory about Sam's own difficulties working with the movie industry. Um, you know, she... She, she looks at it. I mean, she just takes the film and kind of twists it in, in into that kind of reading. And I don't. I'm just. I, I guess I'd have to say I'm ultimately not quite persuaded that. I'm. In fact, I'm not at all persuaded to see how that that that, that could be made to work because you're still faced with 
with what you're with what you're looking at. And I think he did in convoy the absurdity of having Christopher Rubber Duck's, you know, truck go off in a blaze of glory <laughs> that looks like a damn nuclear cloud. <laughs> and then wholly without any explanation, he turns up at the end in the church of the wearing wayfaring stranger. Well in Pat Garrett and Billy the or rather in the killer elite, one ending that he did do that I think was actually previewed is when they get on the boat at the end, Miller, the the, the Bo Hopkins character, reappears on the boat after we've seen him been shot with absolutely no explanation or anything like that. It's just it's sort of like Sam pissing on the movie. Sam Sam showing his contempt for the material he's been given given to do. And I I feel a bit I have to tell you I feel a bit that way about about the end the ending of convoy or when that happens in convoy I think it's it's an interesting uh you know uh a reference you make to the searchers insofar as I feel they do what works in the searchers I think works somewhere similarly to convoy in its sense of cartoon logic. I think it took me several watching the searchers before it really I think resonated with me on an emotional level. I think the first couple of times watching it, I was struck by the lack of realism. I think the Moe's character is problematic as being a very goofball you know, problematic he's absurd no, he's, and it's... ward bond in the middle of this this thing ward bond of course we have to put up with the japery of ward bond getting stuck in the ass with a sword and all yeah and, and i i, I, and I, I it, it takes a while before you i i to me at least at a certain point it 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 is incompatible with itself in any reasonable way but in a certain kind of absurd way it all it all makes sense and is tonally it, it does affect you, and I think the end of the movie it it is completely unearned. Absolutely, that John Wayne picks up uh, Natalie Wood and says, "Come back with me." But it breaks my heart every time because it it is the fact that it's unearned somehow. Uh, I think works within its own sense of unreality. Well, Mark, I can tell you this: you are in good company with that because basically Jean Luc Godard says exactly the same thing about the about the ending of the searchers so you're in better company with them than with him than you are with me for me it I, I just look at it and say well okay if you say so but i'm going to find another bar because i just don't believe this <laughs> that, that's that's interesting uh yeah i, I think actually we'll play a clip uh uh, just of, I think, looking at the film in a, you know, if it wasn't a Peckinpah film, how would it be perceived? And this is oh. from, your, from your track. Let's play this clip. It's interesting to speculate, Garner, if this movie had just had, you know, Alan Smithy's name <laughs> to it, if that's... <laughs> well, that's if what... That's, that's... But, but the thing is, it might be talked about in a way as this strange, weird, you know, sort of trucking movie that suggests all, and who is this guy? This is the only thing. But of course, because it's Peckinpah's name, the, the note you sound is, of course, as you rightfully should, of disappointment and, and all this and well, that. And there's a to, – to, you were talking about Pauline Kael earlier. I have the uh, uh, the start of her review. starts with, was Convoy punished because of the blood Peckinpah has made us look in the yeah. past? And I think in a sense it, 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 right. it, it is hard to overlook its strengths or it's, it becomes easy to look aside of its strengths. And actually I think the particular the particular weird successes of Convoy, if, if you look at the disappointment, it stands within Peckinpah's oeuvre. 
which I think is it is it is a disappointing Peckinpah film. But, but as a film overall, or as a film that you were coming into without a breadth of knowledge about the other Peckinpah films, or even if you do, but are able to put that aside in a weird way, or to just allow the kind of auteur moments of Peckinpah to inform it and elevate what is very detached in some ways, but you get these moments where it's this is. Peckinpah, this is a master, and, and that's work. yeah. We, so actually, we have done a bunch of of work in comparing the movie to the <laughs> novel, the novelization. Which actually, the novelization we're assuming maybe you can actually shed some, shed some light on this, but we're assuming the novelization came more directly out of the screenplay because it was also written by B. W. L. Norton, and it has some I, things that are incompatible that and, you seem to be you know from the earlier versions of the screenplay, right? And 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 when we read the book, and the book is is terrible. It's it's I mean terrible in in in, in even you know in like it. it it's everything uh, – it, it goes at you know great length into these explanations about things that really require no explanation. It, it's, its focus is completely uh, – yeah, it, it focuses on the wrong things in every way possible. In, in the commentary track, you speak of the fact that he, you know, he you know, wanted to elevate bad material, but he did not elevate this enough. I would say considering it's, how bad yeah. it was, I think he did an, uh, an amazing job in, uh, in being a, a script doctor of sorts. He fixed – so many trou- troublesome things about the original uh, well, story. I, I haven't read. I, in fact, before this day, right now, before this moment, right now, I never knew there was a novelization. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, I don't know. It's possible to be able. To Norton wrote the novel as the treatment. I know that has been done mm. in the past. I'm not sure exactly what the story is, but yeah, it's it's it came out. Uh, it has it has it came out after the film to the Does public. Does Rubber Duck die in the novel? Uh, he, same thing happens. He's in the back of the uh, the uh, bus. <laughs> After the truck goes down, it is uh, the book. The book opens the same way the movie was originally supposed to open with the explosion, which, uh, but <laughs> uh, yeah, as a prologue and then the epilogue is his funeral. But yeah, it's but, but it's I mean it's this nice proof point uh, at least for us looking at this of of sort of you know the, the book presents really terrible material in so many scenarios and then you look at the movie and you see it strip out the bad material, focus on the good stuff, and actually make something really you know like turn that into quality in a way that you know I don't think another director would have done. There's 70 pages or so of, of Dirty Lyle debasing himself with pratfalls that are completely omitted, and it's a yeah. much stronger arc for it. Right. Yeah. Well, I, well isn't that I, true? I, isn't it true, Paul, that um, the editor uh, of this film had a lot to do with the shaping of the material? Well, because yeah, Sam I, had left the, he'd left the scene, right, long before yeah. the film was finished. See, I've, I've, never gotten, I've never gotten into it, into it that much um, at the time. And, of course, I should have, but I didn't. Um, in fact, I was at that screening where Culp was, as a matter of fact, uh, and and Garth and Sam both. Garth Craven was the original editor, but they shot something like seven hundred and fifty thousand feet of film on it. And when they and it was at that screening that Sam was let go. That was the screening. It was just a small thing at Goldwyn Studios for a few of us, and we saw it. And I have to confess that I don't remember. The di- I don't remember that screening well enough to remember the differences between it and whatever was eventually released publicly. But Garth was still on it at that time, and I don't remember that the differences were that great. And then Graham Clifford came in, and 
Graham actually worked a bit with Sam on it, but I'm I'm led to understand. I mean, I don't think that there were huge changes. I think what would ha- what happened was it was probably just pulled together a bit, a bit more, and maybe tightened and and so forth. But I can't speak knowledgeably about it, uh, yeah, Nick. I mean, and, and one of these times, it would be fun to talk with to talk with Garth about it. It's it's I it's I feel at this point it's it it from our vantage a bit unknowable to know exactly what the differences were at these different versions of the film. There's rumors of a three hour plus version, and on the commentary track you say this doesn't seem to be so. It was two and a half hours tops. The final version comes in at one fifty five. There's some uh there's some knowledge of deleted scenes, scenes that were filmed. There is scripts of these, but there's no footage that exists, and these scenes. Are minor scenes. There's a scene where Pigpen gets in with a with a young girl who accuses him of rape. It's I, I think stronger for that being admitted. There's a scene with a Texas governor, which doesn't seem to add much. What I wonder is the other footage. Was it more of kind of meat and potatoes plot that it's stronger for a lighting, or, or was, was it, it those really amazing vignettes taking yeah. their time looking well, at these trucks? What it is is look, you you shoot much much more than you can ever ever put in a film on white men can't jump we had a two hour and 40 minute first cut and believe me it did not drag there was a lot of good stuff in that but you can't release a two hour and 40 minute comedy i mean you just i mean mozart to the contrary i personally think cosi fantuti goes on way too long for what is essentially a drawing room comedy glorious music and all um, so how do you ch- how do you choose what to remove from an over long well, comedy? Just, you just basically go down. You begin to just see what works and what works best, and where it seems to lag. And and you know, in, in White Men Can't Jump, there was a whole there was a whole mashugas is what I like to call it uh, <laughs> <laughs> that explained how Rosie got on to Jeopardy, and we so didn't like it that we didn't even show it to the studio. <laughs> and so when, when Joe Ross saw it, he said, so, okay, how does Rosie get on to, to, uh, to Jeopardy? And Ron said, I have an idea for a scene. We need to shoot it. And we got to shoot it. And then you just, you just continue. I mean, it, it's part of just the fine cutting process. There were, there were a few other subplots. There were, there was a whole set of characters we lost from, um, uh, from white men or from uh, from white men can't jump and and also I can go tin cup for example there's you you when, when tin cup loses destroys all of his golf clubs do you ever wonder what he goes to the open with <laughs> well there's a whole there's a whole long plot that shows us how he got them back cut 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 I mean you you just so so that's how it works and Sam was ruthless about this kind of stuff. I mean, there was nobody who, there rarely was anybody ever a director more ruthless with his own material than Sam was with his. So I, I think a lot of that stuff that got cut out, you know, was, you know, was Sam's doing. Plus, well, you know, if you like the movie, you're okay with this. And if you don't, then you don't or whatever. But Nick is right. I mean, Sam was really in major cocaine mode. Um, on on this film and 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 Chris was drinking. I mean, 
you read Michael Dealey's book and you'll see part of the, you know, he calls it Peckinpah Convoy and, and the blizzard of cocaine. Mm. And, uh, you know, well, and Chris was on, the, if you remember, Paul, Chris was on the wagon by this time. And that's why he couldn't relate to Peckinpah. Anymore. Yeah. You know, they, they'd had a great relationship on Pat Garrett and even in the little vignette that he does in Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia when he was drinking. But by the time Convoy was made, Chris was on the wagon. Well, see, I don't know uh, about that. Cause no longer could relate to Peckinpah at all. Dealey talks about his drinking, though, on Convoy, about Christofferson's drinking, or maybe maybe it was the cocaine, but he attributes some of the delays to Christofferson as much as he does to Sam. Hmm. Yes, uh, and, I, and I knew that Michael Dealey did do that uh, in his book, but uh, those are the sort of conflicting Rashomon yeah. type points of view that we often right. deal with in these situations right. where people remember things differently. Mm. Yeah, there's there's a line in the film where Chris Christopherson says, you know, there, there, "There's a I forget what the setup is, but you know, it's a Melissa offers him a beer. Melissa says, offers him a beer, and and and, and Robert X's response is, no, I'm I'm on the wagon.'" And I think that you had said in the commentary that's an allusion to, or that was him, you know, making an allusion to to the fact he, you know, Chris Christopherson was on the wagon at the time. Although who knows um, if it's from the entirety of the, of the shooting? Right. That yeah. does actually. That, that reminds me of. The, there's another thing we've been trying to puzzle out that we uh, we've actually we've done a decent amount of research around and and, and even actually contacted uh, Chris Christopherson's publicist about. Um, there's a there's an odd line where he refers to fish costumes. Um, as it, it, it's this setup of, of like with the plan as we get over the pass is we're going to take out our fish costumes. And it not only is said in the movie and dialogue, it is repeated by C.W. McCall in, in the, closing, the closing credits and is repeated by Chris Christopherson in another film that came out in 1978 <laughs> as well. It's fish costumes. And if you, apparently this only exists within these three places, the concept <laughs> of fish costumes in illusion. It, it, and it only exists very uniquely in these three films. Do you have any idea what is that an inside I, joke? I, is that any idea unless I doubt that you could even find out from asking Chris because his you know he's the poor guy he is owing to playing football and boxing he he has very serious memory issues and so forth it's a shame well, he was recently di- diagnosed with Lyme disease if you remember he was diagnosed with Lyme disease and uh, a lot of people thought he had dementia for years and then that yeah. was a misdiagnosis and they now say that Lyme disease is to blame for this. Oh, wow. Hmm. I, I know he's been canceling shows because of trouble remembering lyrics and right, stuff. Right, right. That's what the publicist passed on, that yeah, he did not remember. publicist told us, yeah, he, he, he doesn't remember. We weren't sure if that was you know them blowing us off or if that was actually legitimately he, he didn't remember. It sounds so. plausible either way. Right, yeah. Um, but it just, but, it just well, such a weird It was detail. a weird, and the fact that it appeared in another film, it was really odd. It just seems like something we'd love to hear the story behind, but obviously we have no real way to well, find out. We have out, reason so. to believe that in 1978, Chris Kristofferson thought fish costumes were very a, funny. Yeah, <laughs> it was a very funny thing. And I, we don't understand. I don't think anyone can understand it. We could ask, we could ask Donnie Fritz, who, uh, who we still talk to quite regularly. He may remember. Yeah, Nick. Yeah, Nick knows Donnie well. So we know Donnie. We actually went through a period in the mid two thousands when we saw Donnie and Chris a lot, mm-hmm. uh, because Chris was still doing a lot of concerts at that time, and Donnie was out here in L.A. quite often. Um, 
But since uh, Chris has begun to retreat a little bit uh, because mm. of his ailments, uh, as far as concerts, we don't see Donnie. Donnie lives in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. Um, we don't see him as often as we used to, but uh, I can certainly ask him. Uh, it's a long shot that he may or may not remember, <laughs> the, but Donnie could remember. Yeah, we realize it's a long shot, but we, we, we think it would be amazing if there was some, some way to, to figure out the, the mystery of this, this crazy phrase. Yeah, yeah, that'd be awesome. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and, and speaking of the music and all this, you know, I, I feel that it's not really brought up in the commentary track as much how you feel about the success of the integration of the the song into the movie. Because I guess where we came from is we already loved the song and we're amazed one they made a movie of the song, and then two, <laughs> Sam Peckinpah of all people was, made the movie. Made the movie. <laughs> it's I guess it, it must seem strange when the news broke at the time that this was getting made, but it's years well, later. I- I met. Well, you know, can, can I answer this, Paul? I was uh, you know, growing up in the, in the UK uh, at the time and being a big Sam Peckinpah fan. When Convoy the Song came out, it was a great big hit in the UK. And let's not forget that this was essentially a British film shot in America, mm. but it was a British backed and British financed picture shot, f- paid for by EMI, and as uh, Paul has just said, produced by Michael Dealey and Barry Spikings. Uh, they had produced The Man Who Fell to Earth and movies like that. They were Brits that liked to make films in America. Uh, and so because the song had been such a big hit in the UK, uh, I think it was logical that they thought, is there a way to uh, to turn this into an idea where you can make a film about big rig trucks, you know, flying around America? Uh, and don't forget that this was the period in the mid-70s when you had films like Smokey and the Bandit, lots and lots of like southern-based car crash movies. This was a period where you could make a film uh, that was essentially one long chase from beginning to end for two hours uh, with plenty of spectacular crashes and things. Uh, Now, the idea of getting Sam Peckinpah involved in this uh, was obviously a commercial one. You know, Sam was looking for work. He was going through a very, very hard time uh, at the time. Uh, He wasn't very well uh, outside of his other problems. Um, And I think he would jump at any opportunity. And this one would seem on the surface to be something that would be a Sam Peckinpah kind of movie. It's very American. It's about an American subculture. And he was always very good, I think, at looking at the underbelly kind of, of American life. Uh, it embodied a lot of his themes and interests, which is, you know, the wide open spaces, groups of people uh, being both unified and disunified, warring factions coming together, trying to find some kind of unity uh, at the end. I think he saw it as a Western with great big trucks instead of horses. And there's no question that he would have elevated whatever flimsy material they began with. Um, you know, uh, because he couldn't help himself. You know, when when you're that good as he was in his cups, in his prime, and no matter how shot your mind becomes, there's some kind of DNA, some synapse, some mind memory that would always tell him how you could better shape the script, how you could better make it work. Uh, But I think what Paul and I have often had to come to terms with over the years with our love and appreciation of Peckinpah's work is that he would start off gung-ho about a project. He would throw himself into it. Uh, He would be all excited about it. 
uh, he would be completely on board until that point when he wasn't on board anymore. Mm. And when he wasn't on board, the thing went to hell. It happened film after film in his later period. He just either simply lost interest or he just didn't give a shit uh, or he didn't like the producers. He, he would invent enemies that he had to fight with that would always somehow conspire against him to finish the masterwork that was being planned. Uh, and I think he shot himself in the foot uh, time after time like this. But you certainly think about the genesis of this project, uh, you know, and being a young person living in London at the time in 1978, I went to see Convoy because it was a Sam Peckinpah film. I wouldn't have gone <laughs> to see it if it was directed by Hal Needham. I wouldn't have cared. But it was a Sam Peckinpah film. And at that time, as the Peckinpah films were getting fewer and further between, you glommed on to a Peckinpah picture, and as a young fan, you make excuses for it. You think, you see in it, you see in it all of the things that you think make up a good Peckinpah film, and you like to try to find ways to excuse the things that don't work. And of course, you don't know much about him as a person at the time. I knew virtually nothing. Paul's book hadn't come out in 1978. There was very little literature on Sam Peckinpah. You couldn't research him in the way that you can now with more than 40 books on the market about him. Uh, he's become, in recent years, uh, uh, someone who has been completely rebuilt in the mind of uh, cineasts. But at that time, uh, he was kind of you know, he was passing away, both literally and figuratively. So as a young fan, you glom onto what's good and you make excuses for what's not good. And then as you get older, while your love for the overall continues, uh, you get much more, you know, you cringe more when you see certain things. You cringe at the things that you, you, you now see don't work. And you can't understand why he would sort of chuck in the towel film after film you know he wouldn't see the project through to the end he, he didn't care enough that's the god honest truth about peckinpah when you get right down to it he may have at one time cared but by the end he didn't and his work really suffered uh for it and his legacy has suffered for it uh even though there are many of us who have tried to do what we can to keep his work alive in the public eye because it deserves to be seen. That, that, that brings me back to something you were talking earlier about the effect of his cocaine abuse during this. Uh, and there's something you say on the on the commentary track saying the cocaine seemed to give the movie a coherence it did not have. And I think we have a response of sorts to that, which is giving a movie a very close reading and almost... Uh, you know, you almost call it paranoid. <laughs> Microscopic yeah, <laughs> reading, yeah. It, it, it seems like this might be uncannily what it is like to have the overstimulation of cocaine abuse. And you start to see small inner structures, a deep inner consistency that you would never experience in a first viewing. There are so many details that are weirdly consistent that, that don't need to be. They don't help well, the film work as a whole, but they make it strangely work on the level of inner structure for well, whatever that I, means. I don't actually know that I think that's all that strange, except that the workings of really great artists and genius, I mean, that that's something that Sam has always been really good at. It, it's what we speak of, it's what everybody speaks of when they call him a poet, that his films 
I mean, his classic films hold together beautifully as narratives, but there is also a whole poetic substructure or superstructure, whatever metaphor in that you, you want to use that keeps them all together. I mean, you could you could take the opening image of the ants and the scorpions in the wild bunch and just see how that is ramified, how that is developed through the entire film. And before Convoy, he had finished he had finished making, I think, a remarkable film. I, I, I don't agree with Nick's assessment that in film after film he seemed, seemed not to care. He cared very much, for example, in Cross of Iron. I, I think he ceased to care in Killer Elite. That's absolutely true. But Killer Elite he did because he thought he'd have a lot of trouble getting Alfredo Garcia through and when he delivered Alfredo Garcia, they said, would you like to take another, a look at this script for us? Mm-hmm. And that's basically how Garth told me that, that he came to do it. And then, then Sam, and then part of also what happened in Sam, and Garner can speak to this point much, much better than I can. And in fact, he does on, on the Killer Elite commentary where they they had a certain script that they wanted to do, and then Khan didn't want to leave San Francisco, so they had to move to San Francisco. They had to switch it to San Francisco, <laughs> and then there were certain things that Duval didn't want to do, so they had to change it for that reason, and they wound up rewriting it on almost a day-by-day basis. And I know that Sam just got fed up with the whole project, which wasn't very good anyway. Um, but But this whole kind of poetic logic that you're talking about it functions beautifully in Cross of Iron, and if I ever write about it, I will try to. I mean, for example, you have that odd moment at the beginning where Coburn takes the clip out of his out of his machine gun and just tosses it, and it's it, you get that slow motion shot where it's just floating in front of him, and then the boy in the dream sequence tosses the harmonica to him, and the two images link up in your mind. I mean, I don't know exactly what they mean or how to interpret it, but you make the linkage. Well, there's a lot of that that goes on in Convoy because coked up or not, and keep in mind, one big difference between Cross of Iron and Convoy is that he didn't have any cocaine on Cross of Iron. Right, right, yeah, alcohol instead, which which you said in the yeah. commentary was, was seemed plus, to actually be beneficial. Plus, I'd like to pick up on something Nick said. Uh, I've only been able to watch one Smokey and the Bandit type movie. <laughs> I haven't even been able to watch it all the way through. I watched as much of it as I could. And, of course, it was so stupid and trashy and all the rest of it. So I would like to say that egregious and unrealized and sloppy and so forth as parts, or as some would say, much of Convoy is, <laughs> the reality is that and here we're kind of speaking out of both sides of our mouths, Sam does elevate the genre in Convoy. He just doesn't elevate it enough. <laughs> and so he's sort of damned if he does and damned if he doesn't. But that I think that does have to be said, that in part what we are responding to is what we know that he can do and what he... It isn't that he didn't do any of this in Convoy. He simply did it partially or or fitfully or without the kind of sustained concentration that you find in his find in his best work. I mean, the last time my, my wife and I actually sat down and watched Convoy and I'm I'm 
I, I had it. I have to confess, for much of it, it of its length, I had a good time with it. I think once the convoy gets on the road, I mean, I didn't care. For, I, I don't personally care for the fight in the diner because it's overdone. And by the way, in case you're not familiar, that is that is completely added from the original treatment. There was no fight in B.W. Mm. Norton's original treatment of, of the, oh. the scene, which is kind of interesting that that's out of whole cloth. Yeah. Uh, and and now we so I mean the interesting like from our perspective of watching it five minutes at a time the the I mean the really well a we we don't necessarily um, have a sense for how long the fight went on because it was just several episodes where we were spending several hours discussing it in each episode so it, it seemed uh, interminable regardless <laughs> um, but but um, but there's also a there's there's a really nice um, sort of consistency to it in terms of uh, uh, like the <laughs> the way where things are placed in the in the scene. Um, the choreography is is very competent. One and two, it, ha- it 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 becomes charming even when viewed under a microscope. Right, I'd say it becomes more charming when viewed under a microscope because there's so many little moments within it. Yeah, but, uh, but to, it's it's interesting to say, yeah, elevating the material and what held him back. This seems to be the biggest scope Peckinpah ever had, insofar as the the original material is about a social movement. And he actually drew that back a bit. There's mm. a lot in the original treatment about media, television. And yeah. he completely cut that out. And I think it's much stronger for it. But I think he is, I think, answering more philosophical ideas on what a society is. And- well, see, here's where Katie Haber, though, would say, I mean, Katie Haber said that really when he started on this he basically wanted to make it he i mean he he now this is what katie tells me that he wanted to make it a truly popular movie he wanted to do something that after the intensity in all senses of the word of cross of iron he wanted something he could look let's have fun with this film mm. let's make a kind of folk tale and so on and so forth and then Apparently, Chris got into the act with, look, this could be an existential statement. And <laughs> this, I mean, and this could be his. And so what you have is the movie, I think, that Michael Schrago at his best, at its best, is talking about this kind of, what did Pauline say, a happy-go-lucky ode to truckers and so on and so forth. And Michael said, you know, he just loves this, this free-spirited anarchy and, and so forth. And Yes, when when the film does that, I, I think it's awfully good and doesn't get too broad. And I think there are places where it just gets too damn broad in its in its burlesquing of the cops and all and, and all of that. But uh, and, and for me, at least, I could take much much more of the truckers. I want much more of um, of the Madge Sinclair character, for instance. Mm. Widow yeah, we, Woman, is that her name? Yes. That's yeah. actually a detail of the movie was reworked after the crash, and she was actually placed in other cabs uh, for the rest of the movie. Oh. Does this imply the movie was shot sequentially? In, in, yeah, we were. So that was something we learned from the commentary. That, so thank you for that. Of, yeah. of that, the, that that crash was was real. <laughs> no, no, that no, that that's why it happened. The crash, in fact, was obviously real. And one of the reasons you know it's real is that Peckinpah didn't capture it in slow motion. <laughs> right, that's, right, right. That's slow motion. I mean, if that thing had been real, he'd have covered it, you know, 14 <laughs> ways from every from every Sunday. And uh, so, so you know that it was – and so once that happened, then she's got to – they have to put her onto a, another truck. Now, in something like this, so long as the char- you aren't losing and gaining characters, you could do a lot of shuffling around and you don't necessarily know – 
where in the convoy, you know, you're going to be. And I also think that he, you know, he, yes, he did. I mean, the things that the movie are quite, is quite wonderful about is the big scale of the truckers and all that. I mean, there, there are some shots in this movie where you see the convoy extending, you know, extending so far. And a lot of directors would, of course, wouldn't have lost that opportunity. But there's a special magic always in the way that Peckinpah shoots. You know, Stanley Kaufman, who just hated the film, he said, go to see it for the first minute. Look at the way he takes just a, a, an empty road in the desert and some trucks and makes a perfect piece of poetry out of it for about a minute. <laughs> that, um, the first minute and, is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting, too, when you get in. I, I feel that there's a, there's a chasm between, I think, the kind of corniness of the Smoking the Bandit kind mm. of tone and to take a step back to the original C.W. McCall song, there's, it's not corny, it's absurd. It's, yeah. really, it's a wonderful kind of... Yeah, you know, absurd bananas quality to it that I think that the movie does a great job to capture the 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 craziness and not it's the a crazy corniness. the cartoon logic the well, crazy yeah, yeah I wish again that's what I wish had been more of I mean if it had just if it had been just this all right we're here on the convoy and and it's and everybody's pissed off <laughs> and you know as pauline kale says they're just pissed off they don't know what they want right right like that. that's they're very just, clear yeah it's yeah. a time just to blow off steam we've been making connections to the the trump movement and just kind <laughs> of the the vague anger in just every direction it seems to be a very you can draw connections between this these movements and well and there's yeah. also there's weird details like the sort of you know the the well, sam was sam was a committed liberal democrat his Right. He was fond of saying. And that's what's so and interesting is the, mov- the, the, the movie. The weird anti-union aspect of the movie is a really weird and contrast to that. Almost and almost pro-anarchy, libertarian, right. wild, rightist in some yeah. ways, too. It's it's odd. It's a weird mix of ideals that, that I, is almost I, – I mean, it feels chaotic. It's a chaotic mix of ideals, but it also kind of meshes with you know what we were saying from the original song. You've got that, like, you know, bizarre, you know – not entirely uh, moving in one direction or another, just absurdity. And to talk about the town at the end, Alvarez, Texas, it's destroyed simply because it simply supports some sort of law and order, and it's right. it's raised to the ground for supporting a sheriff. It's it's it has, which is a strange conclusion to reach. Right. I don't know if any that was felt by anyone, but it's it. Well, yeah. yeah. Yeah, here again, it's, well, it's as Michael Schrago said, you know, I mean, Sam responds to their energy. He responds to their, I mean, he, it, I mean, Michael said, you know, it finds him in a much less nihilistic mode that the movie is filled with a lot of great good humor. And, and I think it is, it is filled with that. And it's also filled with what, for want of a better word, I guess, I can only call a kind of confused anarchy i mean and when i say confused anarchy i mean what i mean is that it you know when when the wild bunch go back to get angel and that entire the entire village is kind of brought down if you will and and you do get the sense that there is a world here that has just become so mired in its own corruption that all you can do is wipe it clean Mm. And the only I think people, that that was the the, only I, people Paul, I think that that's a recurring theme. Yeah. You see, in Sam's work for me, when they mentioned just now the, the sort of the Trump movement, it got me to thinking that what what Peckinpah really is is 
is, is the opposite of the Trump movement. He is anti-authoritarian. The yeah. Trump movement are people looking for a fascist leader right. to take them to the promised land. But what Peckinpah is about is about anti-authoritarianism, bringing down something that's rotten or wrong yeah. and replacing it, albeit after a period of anarchy, with something that hopefully would be better. But there's yeah, a, and there's Christoph a Christopherson says, you know, I'm not leading them, I'm just in front of them. And when they try to make him a leader, he just says, fuck off, bugger off. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I'm, 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 just, I'm just my own man. You know, a very good friend of mine who, alas, passed away several years ago, he was a, he was a, a, a Stephen Crane scholar before he left, uh, uh, before he left um, uh, academia uh, to to become a lawyer, and his name is Henry Binder, and he prepared a cor the correct version of the of of um, the Red Badge of Courage. But we we're watching Convoy, and he said, "Paul, I got to tell you something. One thing that, and I'm trying to one thing that Peckinpah, Hemingway, Faulkner, and Houston, I think he said, meaning John Houston, all have in common is." They all hate fascism. <laughs> and it yeah. is true. I mean, I, I think that I, I, I think that they they do. And if I mean, if somehow or another this this film had 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 gotten less sort of. Well, I, I, I think the only term you could use for the end of it gets to be a kind of a kind of pretentiousness. I mean, you know. When when the film is the happy-go-lucky ode to truckers and all that, and you're seeing them and all their flawed or whatever it is or limited kind of glory, but then toward the end you get the feeling that he's starting to want to try to make a statement. And, and, and I, it's hard to piece together what that statement is. Yeah, exactly. Then try to figure out what it is. Well, Kate again, Katie Haber said it was originally... It was originally going to be kind of like the song, like a modern latter day yarn. And, well, the and song all this. isn't and, coherent too. The song is, in a way, it's it's absurd. They're just going to run their trucks into the ocean <laughs> yeah, in, in, exactly. a, in a suicidal I mean, frenzy. Yeah, it, it's uh, and uh, yeah. so here's a question for you: In what ways? What would the movie? have done to have fixed it what would what would what what would you do to recommend to fix convoy or, or can it be fixed <laughs> well you know you're you're limited to some extent by what by what you shoot but i simply would have rewritten the whole dirty lyle part of it i mean either dirty lyle is the antagonist or He's the antagonist who comes over to our side or somehow or another in this duel between the two of them, they reach a truce because whatever else they... I mean, you can think of a number of ways to end it. Okay, they're the last of the independents, so all the other guys go off and they're placated. They join unions. They are, in effect, bought off. Now, bought off the way I think society should be bought off, I mean... You know, unless we're all insane and we don't want to live together, you know, they're bought off in the sense that, yeah, we've joined a union, we got what I want, our lives are better, and meanwhile, you know, God's in heaven and all's well on earth, and meanwhile, you have Dirty Lyle and, and Christofferson going off in uh, however they reconcile their their differences or their antagonism, they realize that they are the last of the independents. 
to me, okay. to me, uh, yeah, that's one yeah. way. I mean, you you can your imagination could run riot in wild in ways to to do this. Yeah, to me, uh, yeah, Rubber Duck is a Bugs Bunny to uh, Dirty Lyle's Elmer Fudd, and it's they, yeah. they, they need each other in a certain sense. And I think the Road Runner, and yes, yeah. <laughs> it's and I guess it's uh, yeah, I, I think. It's it's them versus I think the the people in the movie who cease to really come to life in exaggerated sense. You look at Walter Kelly's, uh, you know, federal agent is it's he's a wimp of a character, and there's all these wimps of characters, and they're the true losers of the movie. And right. I think that's yeah. kind of that's the dichotomy I feel the film ultimately draws. Yeah, the 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 smart, you know, in the know, uh, independent uh, individuals versus the sort of you know buffoon buffoonish society that you know but they they refuse to live in a way right yeah they may refuse to do all of that and so forth but on the other hand you know sam peckinpah has been far more truthful in other films about what the kind of integrity that duck or lyle if they have it eventually entails i mean look at the way everything falls apart i mean Everything is just left disintegrated and in pieces. What, there's at, no... at the end of Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, mm. um, at the end of the Wild Bunch, it disintegrates and 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 in this in this massive conflagration. But then also at that point in his life, new life and hope grows out of the ashes. It begins to rise again from the ashes and ride the high country. Yes, the old man dies, the old marshal dies, but there's a there's a younger generation that is going to follow in him and at least remember his values if if they don't get to live them themselves. In Cross of Iron, you just get kind of an ultimate war film. Yeah, they're all going to go off and die. And meanwhile, they're going to prepare for the next war unless, you know, the new Germany with... with uh, with David Warner, but I think when he sends David Warner off, David Warner almost looks like a cripple when he's loaded into the jeep and, and told to dry off, drive off. So, you know, it's I sort of I'm sort of with you. It's just that I don't know where I am at the end of Convoy, and it's not like you don't know where you are at the end of Straw Dogs, which is a structured and determined place to leave you without reference points. That's what that film is building toward. But this one just, it it's just, well, again, I hate to use the term, but it, for me it's a mess because I can't figure out any way of articulating what that's meant to be, except we all go off in the bus like, Ken Kesey or hippies or that kind of stuff. <laughs> it has a, a sense but, of, of grace. In his previous films, the idea when you compromise your morals, you suffer for it, and people live in a kind of fugue state of of suffering for the fact that they have compromised themselves. Here, there's an immediate <laughs> grace. People are compromised, but they're redeemed immediately. And it, mm. in a way, is cheap, but then again, it's just a different set of morals. It's, it's that cartoonish set of morals that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, here, here's, a, here's a question for you. Would you have Well, it ends with the old couple finally kissing one another <laughs> at the end of the credits. The, the true yeah. heroes of the movie. <laughs> the tr- uh, here's a question for you. This is, I think, a, not really a conceptual fix, but something I would have found the movie much more watchable if instead of Ally McGraw, who remains completely vestigial, yeah. completely unused to the movie, if it was Cassie Yates in the role of the woman in the truck, would the movie have worked? Well, 
as far as I'm concerned, in those days, you could have put any Cassie Yates in anything that would have worked. Sam told me, Sam told me that he, I thought when I saw Convoy that Allie looked absolutely fantastic. And I talked with Sam about her and he said, you know, to the end of his days, one of the last conversations Sam and I ever had, he defended Allie in the getaway. But he said she was. He, but he said he felt she was all wrong for this one. Once they got, mm. she whereas was, she Cassie worked, yeah. Yates is so sweet. I mean, when she wraps herself up in that bow, <laughs> I mean, it's perhaps my favorite part. I mean, she looks so pathetic and needy at that point. I mean, all she wants is to get laid by this guy who doesn't really give a shit about her. Um, in 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 the pathetic back of this truck, that's her life. Uh, yeah, I, but I think it would have been better. I, I think it would have been very different. I mean, part of part of what Ally McGraw does in that film, however you feel about her, is she brings a whole different culture to that film, and that sort of clashing is what Sam's work is work is all about. I, I'm not sure that. Well, I know Cassie Yates is such a good actor. She probably could have done whatever you wanted her. There's a line in Kale's review where it says that yeah, Chris Christopherson mostly ignores Ally McGraw, and he's better for it. <laughs> which is, I think, it's, it really is the it, yeah. She is completely ignored through the movie, which which is probably yeah, a benefit. Yeah, she plays wonderfully off of McQueen in The Getaway, whereas here there that there isn't the expected dynamic. In mm. fact, you have the setup of this idea they redeem each other and they don't. Not at all. No, no, they they, don't they just it. don't. Yeah. I mean, once again, it's one of those things. They they just don't seem to know what to do with her. And whether there was... Re- I haven't read the screenplays, so whether there was rewriting when they saw the attitude and manner that was being brought to her, I, I just... I don't have. I, I can't answer those questions because I haven't made a study of Convoy. The, the Cassie Yates character, Violet, in the original treatment was was a villain of sorts. She aids and abets Dirty Lyle, helps him get out of handcuffs, and hates Rubber Duck for it. She doesn't have the kind of sad vulnerability and lovability you see in the movie, which is strange. Um, and there's this again stuff that he omitted wonderfully. There's this. Uh, interminable thing about his birthday that goes through the book. Yeah, uh, in, in in the book, they have that's a game they play. Violet and Rubber Duck pretend it's his birthday. It's very odd. <laughs> it's very odd. All right. Well, we we should uh, we should probably wrap it up. This has been a, a really great discussion. So th- thank I you. I got to say, guys, thank you very much for because I, I come away from this thinking I certainly do have to take another <laughs> look or four or five at Convoy <laughs> because I'm. I'm impressed by how much you, how attentive you've been to it. Uh, that, that's that's uh, that's what we're that's what we were hoping for. So it, that's excellent. In, actually, it's impossible to call it a successful Peckinpah film, but it is not a movie without interest. It right. is a fascinating yeah. uh, piece of film. Anyway. I would like to I would like to say that the ultimate tragedy, maybe, of Convoy is that it was a successful film, mm. uh, mm. Uh, reputed to be Peckinpah's biggest hit, and yet the tragedy was it didn't help him at mm. all. Yeah. Uh, he went into an immediate sort of decline uh, with his health right after it, uh, and he made only one more feature film, Osterman Weekend, which was almost five years after Convoy came out. And so ah. what could have been a renaissance for Peckinpah after Convoy, particularly with its uh, success, uh, especially in Europe uh, and in foreign territories, I'm not quite sure how successful it was in the U.S., but overseas it was pretty big. Um, that, but it did not do anything for him. 
in China, it was so popular they had to start they had to start showings at five o'clock in the morning, and they had pe- people lining up for them. And I think it was because for the China of that time, and perhaps even now, and I, and I, I don't wish to sound you know this to sound culturally or ethnically or racially condescending, but I have a feeling it was because of the big trucks. I mean. They they don't there there was not in those days and I don't know about it now the any sort of equivalent to these massive trucks <laughs> which so, which maybe that's actually a way in which it works better is yeah if you're looking at it as this kind of fantasy world it, it yeah, probably is it, a it, lot it, more it, coherent the, the movie doesn't demand you have a frame of context it actually explores anew what is a truck in the desert and it, it those are some of those beautiful parts where it feels like something foreign and strange and beautiful. No, I mean it is, and they all have person. They they all have personalities. I mean, I, I I mean I I don't know that he's ever seen Convoy or been influenced by it, but it would certainly not be all that hard to draw a line from Convoy to the last last year's was it Mad Max movie. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think... That, oh, that's actually a great parallel, yeah. Yeah, I mean, George Miller's original, I mean, I'd say The Road Warrior is more of a kind of uh, abstract version, which was brought back new with the new version of Mad Max. Yeah, there is a kind of... It's, it's surprisingly... <laughs> it, it is. It embraces the absurd, embraces yep. the extreme and kind of primal... And, and it, and it paints too. that fantasy fantasy yeah. logic, cartoonish logic that yeah. that you know dictates a whole world. Yeah, you, you want you know what? If anybody ever wanted to remake Convoy, oh George <laughs> Miller, that'd be amazing. Oh. No, not George. Oh, no. okay, I, but it would I, be amazing. Though. <laughs> I have a much better guy to do it than George Miller because George Miller would be too interested in the trucks and the stunts. <laughs> if anybody is to do a rewrite on Convoy and remake it and do it. I think the way it should be done, which is to say, emphasize as much as you can the colorfulness, the individuality of the characters, how they express themselves in their trucks and what they do with their trucks. The man to do it is the director I've worked with more than any other is Ron Shelton. And uh, which, which films did you work with Ron Shelton on? White Men Can't Jump, Tin Cup, Cobb, Play It to the Bone. I mean, Ron's got this. He, he also did uh, um, um, Bull Durham, which I didn't work on. I mean, Ron has this really wonderful common touch. He knows these people. I mean, look at the character, the group of characters that follows Tin Cup around in in Tin Cup, and imagine that kind of you know wealth of characterization and idiosyncrasy and all that being let loose on on the world of you know on 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 this whole subculture of of of, of truckers you know i mean I, focus, I think ron would actually be a wonderful person to yeah throughout to, his films a focus on the common man and a kind of you call him copeland-esque you know way of of emphasizing the the dignity of everyone's life and i think yeah convoy works best when it is these these people who've been abused asserting their own dignity and finding joy and in, in small fun in their life and i think that's yeah that's that's an excellent thing to pick up on <laughs> excellent well they, 
I mean, they don't do enough with Big Nasty in the movie. I wanted <laughs> to see more of him. That's true. Uh, it is. It, it, I'd say it seems like some European DVDs may have cut some of the Big Nasty homoerotic undertones out. I think it's it's wonderful how comfortable he is with himself in the movie, and it it yeah. it, 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 it is aged wonderfully. I yeah. Think. Yeah. It works well. Yeah. Um, excellent. Well, th- this has been really great. Thank, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, and uh, yeah, we, we definitely do hope you take another look at Convoy. We've, we have 20 hours of podcasts there if, if you'd like to, <laughs> All right. to, All right. to listen through them. And, and, get... and, and, and I think to talk about the formalities, I think uh, for making a wonderful time today and having this discussion, I think, do we bury I think we're, we're going to bury our feud, yes. yes. We, we're... <laughs> Well, thank you so kindly. This has been great fun. It has been. Thank you so much, Alan and Mark. It has been very enjoyable. We didn't know what to expect. Uh, we're used to taking it on the chin and being criticized for our crimes over the years. <laughs> so we didn't know if we were going to be uh, browbeaten or not, but uh, you've made it a very uh, a very enjoyable experience. So we yes, and if, they ever, and if Nick ever redoes Convoy in another blu-ray thing then maybe we should have a four or five way discussion here oh of course well, that would, we should no. be so honored <laughs> yeah, that would be incredible uh, thank 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 you so much uh and uh and have a good day bye-bye okay you too. breaker breaker what's your 20 this here's the podcast crew we're hauling up at 901 about to hit the airwaves Ready for big trucks, cool characters, and the explosive action you'll only find in Convoy? Well, rev up your engines for... An earful of Convoy. Northern California's number one podcast about the 1978 movie based upon the 1976 novelty song about trucking. Fans of cinema and music will find much alike. That is, if you're not some no-good bear like Dirty Lyle. Breaker, breaker, good buddy. Expect in-depth analysis, breaking news about the cast and crew... A little rubber duck humor. And we'll even have a bear in the air. They even had a bear in the air. 